Okay, all you kiddos, you know where to go. Time to leave. You want to go have fun, don't you? Oh, boy. How could you not walk into our church and love all this? You wonder what's going to happen. We keep you on your toes, don't we? Isn't it great? Okay. Before we get into the text, I want to uh, bring your attention to a couple of things on the back of the bulletin. One that's not on here is uh, Advent Devotions. By the way, uh, thank you for all of you uh, that are sending us feedback, sending emails. When you hit reply, it comes to me, so I'm getting a ton of feedback. We do a, For those of you that are visitors, we're doing Advent Devotions every day from First Sunday of Advent through Christmas, written by the staff and elders. So everyone's different from day to day. So um, just be aware when you hit reply, it comes to me. So I'm enjoying all of your comments and everything. But uh, you're not writing to Jude when you hit reply. You're writing to me. So uh, don't forget to tell Jude and the staff thank you if you love their devotions. If you're not getting the devotions, there's a sign-up. because we don't have your email or we have the wrong one. There's a sign-up out on the Welcome Center. So feel free to put your email on there and we'll get it to you. Right, uh, the very top thing, join us for Christmas Eve service, candlelight services. What time are our candlelight services? Four and six, let's say it again, together, four and six. What happens if you come at five? Yes, we put you to work. That's what happens if you come at five. And um, so four and six, and we're going to ask you, four and six, we're going to ask you to consider doing a couple of different things. One is um, park as far away as you can. I said last week, if you have a teenager, that's perfect. Let them drop you off and they can hike. Uh, you might suggest that you carpool with one of your friends, but, but suggest that they drive. So they can drop you off and they can go park the car. You can find lots of ways to, to park far away. Because we'll have, we'll have a thousand people here Christmas Eve. This is the one time of the year, when we one of the times of the year, when we fill our church with people that wouldn't go to church any other time. The second thing to please think about is, if, especially if you don't have family, consider going over into the commons that night rather than in this room. Save this space for our visitors. Every single seat will be filled. We'll be, have chairs even further up to the front. The commons will have people in it. And sometimes we have so many, we overflow into the narthex, the, the, the space in the middle. So just think about uh, if you don't have um, friends or family, um, go over there. Which brings me to my third point, invite all your friends and family. Then you have a reason to come in here. All right. The, on the first red box on the back is uh, we could use your help. We need ushers. We need greeters. And we need people to serve communion. It takes a lot to pull off Christmas Eve. So if you're going to be here and would like to serve, shoot me an email and let me know that you're going to do that. would love to put you on one of the teams to help out. And then finally, the big red box down near the bottom, the DCC Food Bank. This time of the year, we have a lot of demand, and so our supplies are running low. So please consider either donating cash. When you get to the offering, you can write it on your check if you want to do it that way. That's for the food bank. And, uh, or food to help get stocked back up because uh, we're giving out a lot. So uh, thanks for helping us. Thanks for being part of it. Okay. This morning I would like to pray for um, Roy Herring again. I mentioned Roy last week. Uh, they're back down in Houston at MD Anderson. Uh, this summer he was diagnosed with a stage one lung cancer. So um, the chemo is having effect and he's rejoicing, but we should still pray for him. But then we have another one to pray for. I don't know if most of you know Rodney and Angela Cummins. Cummins, they go here. And uh, 
Uh, honestly, I hadn't met them. They've been working to stay under the radar screen, but it's about time they came above the radar screen. And um, they've been coming for about 10 months. And he has been diagnosed earlier this year with stage four colon cancer. So he's fighting for his life. So we have two. There may be others out there. Uh, and if you and if you would like us to pray for you, either up front or privately or however, we'll do it however you want. I ask uh, Rodney's permission to pray for him as a church. Uh, let us know. We will pray for you. He, um, they came to search church last Sunday, and as they told me the story we talked to this week, his nine-year-old daughter said, Mom, Dad, you've got to call Pastor Jim. You've got to tell him. You heard the sermon. So, so they called and said, all right, here's what's going on. So Rodney and Angela, uh, he has stage four colon cancer. And Roy and Nancy Herring, and uh, he has stage one. So let's stop and pray for these people. Also be sensitive in this time of the year. We have, uh, we have widows and widowers here that um, this may be their first or their second season without their spouse. And it's just a hard time. It's just a hard time. So be sensitive to them. Let's pray. Father, I would like to lift up Roy and Rodney and their families to you, Lord. These men are fighting for their lives, Lord. Uh, and I pray, God, my personal prayer, my personal request and desire is that you would just heal them. Uh, I have no doubt about your ability and your power. Um, I pray that you would. But Lord, I pray that during this time, whatever you decide, you would be with their spouses and their children, their families. Help them, Lord, to, to, to know how to live out their faith during this challenging time. Uh, be merciful to them. Come alongside of them, Lord. Help us as a church to be responsive and to love them well. And Father, I do lift up our widows and our widowers here, many, some of whom this is their first Christmas without their spouse. Lord, I remember well uh, the pain. And I pray, God, that you would be gracious to them during this time. It's okay for the tears to come. Lord, help us as a congregation, as a church, as a faith community to love them well and to surround them and to uh, help them during this time. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, I have a confession to make. I put myself through college as a used car salesman. That's right. Our senior pastor was a used car salesman. How I became a used car salesman is what surprised me because I had no intention of ever being a used car salesman. I was 21, and uh, my first wife, who was terminally ill at the time, um, she was expecting our oldest uh, so it was 35 years ago. We were, uh, didn't have jobs. We were poor, had no money, literally had nothing in the refrigerator. And we heard on a Christian radio station about a car lot, a used car lot that was hiring a lot boy. So I went down and applied and um, got the job. So at least we had a little bit of money coming in. And so I worked for one week and I asked my boss, who was a Christian, the owner, if he would, uh, he paid every two weeks. So I wasn't going to get paid till the second week. I asked him if he would um, give me an advance so that I could eat. And he said no. Hadn't been two weeks yet. So I waited till the end of the second week when I had earned the first paycheck, and I walked in and turned in my two-week notice. So I'd only been there two weeks, and I quit. And he said, why are you quitting? And I said, uh, two reasons. One is um, you... Um, you tell me you're a Christian and I have no food in my house. And I didn't even ask you for an advance up front. I wait till I'd earned a week of it. And you still wouldn't help me. And um, I don't think I want to 
be part of this. Second reason is uh, when you're not around, especially the environment here in the car lot is not very healthy. I don't like the attitudes. I don't like the, the, um, the way that they hurt each other and gossip about each other and the immorality that goes on, and you're not doing anything about it. And I just don't want to work here. And he said, okay. So two weeks went by, so I'm on my last day. It's on a Friday. And I go in, and he said, I want to talk to you. He said, have you found another uh, job yet? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, okay. I'd like to start with an apology and ask your forgiveness. I'm sorry. He said, I have thought long and hard about what you said, and you were right. I shouldn't, you shouldn't have even had to ask me. And then I said no on top of it. I'm very sorry. So I only asked that uh, somewhere over the time, the intervening days and weeks, that you would find it in your heart to forgive me for that. Second of all is um, I confirmed with my wife what you said about the environment here, and I'm very uncomfortable with it too now that I, you've told me about it. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to ask you to stay on until you find a job. So I can at least take care of you because your wife is pregnant until you find a job. When you find a job, then you can leave. How's that? And I said, okay. So uh, he said, uh, do you think you could sell cars? No idea. I've never done it. Last thing I thought about or wanted. He said, I think you can. So here's the book. I want you to go home, spend the weekend studying. I'll pay you for it. Go in Monday morning, take your test, and come in with your salesman's license, and we'll start. And I said, okay. So I went home, studied all weekend, and took my license, came in Monday. I said, hey, I got my license. I passed. And he goes, yeah, good. And I said, uh, where is everybody? And he said, I fired them all. All 13? And he said, all 13. It's you and me. We're starting over again. I worked for three years selling used cars for him. He was there when my first wife died, took care of me. Uh, he and his wife and family, they fed us. They loved us. They took care of us. My first month as a salesman, I sold more than three, three times as many cars as his five salesmen did the month before. And uh, he must have saw something in me. I'm pushy, manipulative. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> <laughs> he uh, eventually sold his car lot and went on to become a uh, Colorado State Senator. And uh, we are good friends to this day. And in fact, uh, just about a month ago, he and I spent an hour on the phone just catching up and talking and um, he's a good man. And I learned a lot about <coughs> sales. I'd never been in sales. I was only 21. All I had been in the Navy. That's all I had ever done. And you don't do any sales in the Navy. And I learned a lot about honesty and integrity. And uh, that's my natural demeanor. Since becoming a Christ, I'm very serious about my integrity. And so I would just, it made him a little nervous at first. I'd take somebody for a drive in the car and they'd say, well, what's wrong with it? I think the transmission's going out. <laughs> I would just tell them. You do? And I go, yeah, that's why we're offering it at this price. You probably got about a year left on it, is my guess. And uh, okay, I'll buy it. I just told him the truth. And pretty soon I had brothers and uncles and aunts, moms and dads, kids, relatives, neighbors, friends coming. I had a line of people coming to buy cars. Here's a guy that you could trust because we have a stereotype about used car salesmen, don't we? <laughs> and... Um, uh, someday I'll tell you about what I learned theologically during those three years of doing that. And um, it was a fabulous experience, fabulous experience, and I learned a lot about it. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. We're going to circle back to that story in just a minute, by the way. The appearing of the Messiah. And we're doing it a little different this year. We're taking you to an event later in the life and ministry of Christ and then reflecting back on what that means at his birth 
because that's really what Christmas is all about. So the first Sunday, we were in Galilee. Remember the fishing nets? And we talked about being fisher of people. And what on earth did Jesus say that caused those fishermen to drop everything and leave their nets and businesses behind and follow Jesus? They didn't even know who he was. So we, we talked about that. And I asked you then, are you, are you catching people? That is your purpose as a Christian, is to catch people for Christ. And then last Sunday, we went to Judea. You may remember the little, the little sheep running back and forth on the stage. You can look on Facebook and see a picture of it. It's pretty cute if you haven't done it. We talked about the sheep and how sheep are smelly and dumb, and that's you. And me, by the way. And how Jesus came to be a shepherd because we were sheep that were scattered, running all over the hillside with no direction. And he, um, he went and found us. He corralled us one at a time and brought us together. Today we're going to talk about pushy salesmen. But first, we need to take a look at the background to these stories. All right. At Solomon's dedication of the temple, you may remember King David was going to build the temple, and God said, no, you got too much blood on your hands. You did what I wanted you to do, but my house will be a house of peace. You got too much blood on your hands. Your son Solomon will build it. So David stockpiled all the materials, built the, designed the plans, did everything, turned it over to his son, and his Solomon built the temple. His son Solomon did. And just listen to um, this. I'm in 1 Kings 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, because they had brought the ark into this new temple, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their duty because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he will dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So he turned to the crowd. He said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hands has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and they couldn't even go into the temple. It's just amazing. So he's now outside the temple. They kill all these animals to honor the Lord, and he prays on behalf of his nation, with them all there, to the Lord. This wonderful prayer in 1 Kings 8. If you've never read it, you should read the whole thing. It's spectacular. I'm just going to read for you a couple of verses, uh, 1 Kings 8, 41. Now remember, he's praying to God in front of all of his nation. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name. Aren't those wonderful words? For they will hear of your great name, because their gods were dead. And you know what? Our God is alive. He is the one true living God. He is alive. When you live your life of faith, genuinely, they will hear of his great name. I just love that. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. So, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and they pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you. You ever prayed that for your unsaved friends? Lord, listen to my friends and do whatever they ask from you. You ever, you ever pray that for unbelievers, unbelievers? Is this great language or what? Why? Do whatever they ask 
of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Is that wonderful? That's the first temple. By the time we get to Jesus, we're on the third temple. So this is the first temple. It was a magnificent temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple under Solomon. Under Solomon's reign, the the nation was blessed. They grew. They reached the height of their empire under Solomon. And then they began to turn away. You know the story. As the nation grew and developed, Solomon died. The nation split to the north and the south. They turned away from God, and they abandoned his mission to reach the world. And they began to develop a mindset. You're not like us. Stay out. We don't want you here if you're a foreigner. You're not Jewish. Stay out. And then we have the kings and the chronicles, the stories in the Old Testament of the one king after another uh, doing more evil than the king before. And occasionally you have a bright spot, Josiah. Somebody would step in and do what was right. But it was a downhill slide from that time on until both nations ended. Downhill slide. It's amazing. Then you have what's called the Second Temple Period, where uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, they came back and they rebuilt the temple. Called the Second Temple Period, that's the time between the Testaments, Old and New Testaments, when God is silent. And um, <clears throat> the glory of the Lord is not in the temple. They're worshiping the Lord, but the glory, the God's not there. It's his house, and he's not home. He's not home. But we learn from Isaiah that God still has other plans. Even though, they, even though they were thwarting his plan to reach the world, they didn't get very far. Listen to these words in Isaiah 56, starting in verse 3. This is a prophecy. Let no foreigner, now we just talked about foreigners, right? Solomon prayed when a foreigner's come, listen, answer their prayer. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. So we have a foreigner, we have a eunuch. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. To the eunuchs and the foreigners. These are the outcasts from Israel. You're not like us. Stay away. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and I will give them joy in my house of prayer. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. So he's writing to the foreigners, to the eunuchs, to the exiles, to the Gentiles, everyone that the Jewish people had said, you're not like us. Stay out. They were previously unwelcomed in the temple, but Isaiah helps us to see that they are very near to the heart of God. By the way, he's talking about you. You're a Gentile, almost all of you. This is about you. It was his desire to bring these unwanted people into his temple, into his house. Why? To enjoy them. 
to enjoy them. Is that good news? If your friends and neighbors who don't know Christ knew that the one true God wanted to enjoy them, I keep thinking every day, if they only knew and knew the truth, if they only knew the truth, they would be idiots to reject it, right? The one true God wants to enjoy them, but he also wants them to enjoy him. It's a relationship. So he said, my house is open to everyone. That's called hospitality. My house is open to everyone. This is the background to Jesus' actions. All right, now I'm going to read Mark chapter 11. They read the Matthew account. I'm going to read to you the Markan account, Mark 11:15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? All right, what's going on here? We've got to figure this out. The glory of the Lord has not been in the temple since the day of Solomon. It's been dead, dark, quiet, cold. And Jesus' first actions in the temple? Some of his first actions is to clean house? So what's happening here? All right, let's talk about the temple in Jesus' day. This is the third temple, as I said. It was begun in 20 B.C. under Herod. Herod uh, did a lot to incur the favor of the uh, Jewish people, and he built wonderful, wonderful places, and the temple was one of them. He rebuilt the temple bigger and grander. So let's pause for just a moment and ask this question. I want you to imagine with me. What, um, what is the largest and most important building in our country? A building that people visit regularly symbolize our American beliefs? I, I bet it's probably somewhere in Washington, D.C. We might pick the Capitol. Maybe we'll pick the White House. I don't know. But we're going to pick some building that we all know about, right? Something that symbolizes who we are as a people. Now, suppose that you believe that God is going to destroy this building because of greed along with the leaders that refuse to change. Maybe you believe that. Okay? And so you believe that you're responsible to warn the people and give them a sign before it's too late. How would you do it? How would you do it? This is important to think about because if you don't think about this, you're going to miss what Christ did here. This is a turning point in world history. The temple consisted that Herod was building consisted of four divisions and was immense. Started in 20 AD, finished in 66 AD, just in time for Titus to come and destroy it. So, four divisions. It was immense. The largest and the biggest division, the first, was the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was outside the sanctuary proper. It was 500 yards long. That's five football fields. 500 yards long, 325 yards wide. It included within it a portico supported by rows and rows of columns. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us that the columns were 35 feet high. They were so massive, it took three people with arms outstretched to circle these massive columns. This is the area where merchants were selling sheep and doves for sacrifices, and they also exchanged foreign currency. You see, three times a year, the nation was required to come gather. That's when they offered sacrifices. They couldn't worship and they couldn't offer sacrifices except at the temple, according to Deuteronomy 12. So they would come and gather three times a year. And so you had people from traveling all these distant 
land, from these distant lands coming. And if they brought their animals with them, if for something happened to the animal along the way, it would no longer be suitable for a sacrifice because the law prescribed the quality of the animal. So they would often wait to get to the temple to um, buy their sacrifice. Okay, So you get the picture? And so you have this, you have this commerce going on inside the temple. By the way, the commerce isn't the issue. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, the temple precincts were overseen by the Sadducees. They were the part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class. There were four classes in the ruling group. But these were the wealthy ones. These were the elite ones. These were the, they were very, very wealthy people. The immense volume of trade and exchange that occurred in the courts of Gentiles was crucial for two reasons, one of which is legitimate. The maintenance of proper worship and sacrifice depended on this. Okay? For example, just to give you a picture, in AD 66, when the temple was completed, they sacrificed 255,600 lambs. You needed a system to take care of the nation when they came. So up until this point, that system of commerce was outside the temple proper. Okay? It wasn't inside the temple. Uh, in the great Hindu temple in uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, where I've gone and seen this happen, as you walk through the temple, you pass by the money changers, and they're out there trying to sell you. Do you want a chicken? Do you want a goat? Do you want a flowers? Whatever it is you're going to offer, do you want that? And they're selling it. And you buy it, and you go, and you go into the temple and make your offering. So that was legitimate. They had no problem with the, the system. They needed the system to take care of the nation. So commerce isn't an issue here. Jesus is not opposed to money and commerce. Okay, That's not what we're talking about here. But the second one is an illegitimate one. It resulted in the financial gain of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the people who were already rich and oppressing the people. And uh, they were wealthy and getting wealthier at the expense of the poor people. So now picture this. You're a poor person that comes from a distant land. In your country, you can buy a turtle dove. By the way, we're talking Joseph and Mary. They offered a turtle dove as a sacrifice. That shows you, according to the law, they were in the lowest strata financially of the nation. We're going to talk about that Christmas Eve. They were the poorest people in the nation. That's who Jesus chose to, to give their son to, give a son to. So, so in your country, let's say you pay a dollar and you get her to the temple, and all of a sudden it's $10 for the same turtle dove. See what's happening here? All right. I'm beginning to get a sense of why Jesus was a little upset. The other three divisions of the temple were the court of the women. That's where the women, Jewish women, could meet. The court of Israel, those were only for circumcised Jewish males, and then the Holy of Holies. Those were in the sanctuary proper. The court of the Gentiles was not part of the sanctuary. These, they, the Gentiles were not allowed into these other three areas. So there's two things wrong with this setup. Number one, by moving the merchandise inside to the court of the Gentiles, we're not quite sure when that happened. It may have been under Caiaphas, the high priest, saw an opportunity to make money. So he moved the merchandise, the selling, inside the court of the Gentiles. By doing that, he excluded the Gentiles from worshiping. Okay, now go back to Solomon's prayer and Isaiah's prophecy. God says, this is my house for all nations. And so when they moved them inside the temple, the money changers, they prevented the Gentiles from worshiping because this is the only place available to them right here. There were warnings posted on the wall surrounding the sanctuary. And it read this, no foreigner may enter without the ra- within the railing and enclosure that surrounds the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his con- consequent death. 
If you're a Gentile, go past this point at the risk of death. This probably is behind Paul's statement in Ephesians 2.14. He made the two, Jews and Gentiles, one by, by removing the barrier. That's the same word that Josephus uses to describe this wall around the sanctuary. By removing that dividing wall in his flesh when he died on the cross. So, number one, they, the Gentiles were even further excluded. They couldn't even come to the temple to worship because their space was now taken up by these money changers. The second, uh, the second problem it created is that the merchants were probably impeding the poor as well by charging too much, which is why Jesus says, you have, he quotes Jeremiah, you have made my, uh, made my house a den of robbers. Two things wrong with this. The Gentiles no longer have a place to worship, and that's the whole reason why God built this palace, had it built, and the poor could no longer offer sacrifices. So by clearing the temple and interrupting the sacrificial system, Jesus is making a very powerful statement. Listen to what happens just before he cleanses the temple. Same chapter. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethany, Jesus said, go into the village and you're going to find a colt there. No one's ridden on it. Bring it here. The Lord needs it. So he rides into Jerusalem on a colt when they say, Hosanna, and they wave their palms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You've been here at Palm Sunday. You know we do this. We act it out. We live it out. All of you get palms. He comes in as a king. He comes in as a king. That's what he's doing here. He rides in and he goes right to the temple and clears house. Cleans house. Kicks everybody out. The glory of the Lord had not filled the temple since Solomon's day until this day. Because when Jesus walked into the temple... He was God. God came home to his house. And he said, you have turned my house into a den of robbers. Wow. Very powerful statement. The leaders of the temple were known by this time for their rich and oppressive lifestyles. So we have two things happening that are really bad. We have violence and hostility towards outsiders. That's the Gentiles. They can't worship, and we have injustice toward insiders. Those are the Jewish people who can't get to the worship. They can't afford to buy what they were charging. By stopping the process as king, representing God himself, Jesus is giving a sign that the temple had now come under God's judgment. This would get him killed. Because right after this, he says, destroy this temple in three days, and I'm going to rebuild it. And he did. And where's this new temple now? You're the spiritual temple. He did it. This period of history came to an end. So what's this have to do with Advent? I'm going to read three little things out of Luke. The very beginning of the story, which we're so familiar with. Listen to Mary's song after she found out she was pregnant. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I'm in Luke chapter 1, by the way. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And then verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. To those, he didn't say to those Jews, to those, anyone who fear him. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Think about what he did in the temple. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Folks, he did not forget us. He remembered us. And he cut right through the oppression of these power-hungry people to make that happen. A little bit later in the same chapter, Zechariah, who's John the, fa- John the Baptist's father, when he can finally speak, he says, here's how he praises God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said he would through his holy prophets of long ago. He, will, he did not forget us. He remembered. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now think of that in the context of creating the temple. Who are the enemies of that common person? The oppressive rich rulers. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, now he's talking about his son, John the Baptist, and you, my son, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Now listen to this language. Because of his tender, because of the tender mercy of our God. Is that great language? Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and living in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. In the Old Testament, that language, those living in darkness, always applies to the Gentiles. He came to shine on us, to give us clarity, to help us see. And then in chapter 2, verse 29, Simeon, a very old man by now, toward the end of his life, they're bringing Jesus to circumcise him. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. My house will be called a place, house of prayer for all the nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He came for us. What does his action in the temple have to do with us? That's what Advent's all about. That's what Christmas is all about. Christ came because he remembered his promise. He did not forget us. He loves us. We've been asking you if you are ready to meet the Messiah in new and fresh ways. Every week we've tried to talk about what gift did the Lord bring when he came. The gift is he didn't forget you. He came back for you. He was willing to clean out the temple for our benefit. Because we're Gentiles. That's for us. With Christmas approaching, in what ways are we as a church, not we as a national church, but we as BCC, us right here? So visitors, you can just be patient just for 10 seconds here. I'm asking our people. Okay, in what ways are we inhibiting the unsaved, the outcasts, the poor, the marginalized, the drug addicts, the widows, the orphans, Are we like the Jews? You're not like us to stay out?
we, as the temple of God, are a house of prayer for all the nations, everyone, no matter how broken. So how have we structured church to keep those people out? Father, thank you for your your great love for us. Thank you for your incredible sacrifice. Thank you for your willingness to, to embarrass yourself, shame yourself by cleaning out the temple so that we, we foreigners, we Gentiles, could come to you. Thank you for loving us so much that you long to have us in your home, eating meals together, fellowshipping, enjoying each other and enjoying you. Lord, you long to just love us and be with us. Thank you for being that kind of God. Thank you for loving us that deeply. In your son's name we pray, amen. Then he asks the ushers to come forward and take the offering. You've heard me say it lots of times. Thank you for your generosity. You know, the money that you put in that offering, I just don't want you to write a check. I want you to be grateful for what the Lord has done. The money you put in there, yes, it pays our salaries and pays electricity. And by the way, on behalf of the staff, we're all grateful for you. Thanks for taking care of us. But we also use that money for lots of other things. Uh, many of you are here for the Christmas lighting, I mean the tree lighting. The town of Dillon came to our church. We did it last year. We had 600 people. They did it again this year. It was so successful. This church was packed with people that would never come to church. Recently, we had a craft fair in here. I just wandered around watching people that would not come to church. They're here. They're here. I desire for our church to be a space that feels safe to our community. And you're the ones that make it possible. Thank you for your generosity.